Welcome to the Future of Protein Production Podcast. In this series, we will explore the technological advancements that are shaping alternative proteins. From cultured meats to plant-based proteins, we will talk to experts and innovators who are working towards a more sustainable, efficient, and kind protein production system. Join us as we dive into the exciting possibilities and challenges of the alternative protein production industry in the years to come. Welcome, everybody. Um, thanks for joining the Future of Protein Production. In this panel session, we're going to talk about flavors and colors in analog products. And in this session, we also have uh, tremendous uh, experts who are joining us to talk about this exciting topic. Firstly, we have Dr. Nachi Rekhev. He's a senior flavor specialist at Nestle. We have Mariano Di Rubo. He's a senior food scientist and engineer at Microma. And we've also got Anil Pothamsedi, the consultant specialty chemicals with, with ChemBizar. Welcome everybody to this panel. Really looking forward to talking to you about your views on this topic about flavors, which is taste and colors, which is appearance, the attractiveness in analog products. So my first question to kick this uh, uh, session off, you know, it's a well, there's been a lot of discussion about meat analogs over the last five to 10 years. We are seeing that the industry is really ramping up in terms of product development, new product launches, etc. My first question is to you, Dr. Narji, from a Nestle perspective, from the work that you are doing, you know, how do you see the highly processed nature of plant protein meat alternatives? How is that a hurdle for this segment? And how do you address this topic from a flavor perspective? Uh, I, I have not picked up the last one because it was really freezing. Could you repeat the question? Just the last part of the yeah. So I would like to ask question. Yeah, I would like to ask you that the plant protein meat alternatives is highly processed in nature. How is this a mm -hmm. hurdle for this segment, and how do you address this hurdle from a flavor perspective? I think what. Uh... Uh, the the the, la the last uh, presenter Felipe has really summarized it, this in in a beautiful way, and uh, the right one who can really answer it is always the flavor houses and also the 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 manufacturer, the food manufacturer companies. What we do internally is we we make sure uh, to reduce this high uh, processability of all the food, not only the, the meat analog, but also the meat analog in particular for this session. In general, what we use is we use natural flavors. Uh, make sure the, the naturality is there. Uh, beside the naturality, the ingredients that we are using there has to be familiar to the consumers. Uh, some consumers, for example, as he was saying, and this is really the case for Europe, is the germ the, in Germany, uh, they, don't, they don't want to see the yeast extract there. Whereas yeast extract is one of the ingredients which has been uh, used across the world for more than decades. Uh, we, we have other solutions which are recognizable by, by, the, by, the, by the, the consumers, which can replace the yeast extract impact as well. So as I said, two things in general, 
we always make sure that we use natural flavors, which are highly um, perceived by consumers. The, uh, this is from the from the research that we have done and that we have seen in the literature that natural flavors are still have highly acceptability from consumer perspective. The other ingredients that we use as seasonings and spices and extracts, they also have to be natural. When we say natural. Now there is natural in Europe, there is natural in the U.S., and there is natural in uh, in uh, in Asia because each country and each region they have their naturality. So we abide as a Nestle company to all the legalities that are required from country to country, from region to region. So whenever we put it there, when you read it, it will be really understand by the consumer. So this is how we reduce the highly processability of. Of flavors and flavoring and seasoning in our products. Excellent. And Dr. Uh, Naji, you know, I also had the privilege of sitting into your talk where you mentioned the authenticity of meat alternatives. From a sens sensorial experience point of view, where do you think is the industry between meat and the meat analogs from a flavor and sensory perspective? And before, after you answer, I'll go to Mariano for a question for him. Did I, I really apologize because it was freezing, so I haven't heard the question. Okay. If you can repeat it, yeah. again, I really apologize. Yeah, no, I'm saying that in your talk a bit earlier, you spoke about meat analogs versus meat as part of a study. Where do you think is... Uh, you know, meat analogs from a sensorial experience, where does that rate with meat in your current understanding? Can you hear me? It's okay. Let's go to Mariano. Mariano, um, firstly, welcome. I would like to hear from you because you're coming at uh, natural flavors from a very different technology perspective in Microma. So what I like you to do is firstly introduce a little bit about what Microma does and your approach towards natural flavors and natural colors for these products. Sure. See, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to join the panel and share my my point of view. Uh, what we do at Microma, uh, I'm the food scientist and engineer here. We we developed a platform that includes filamentous fungi uh, and fermentation to produce different food ingredients for the food industry that uh, could, for example, uh, biomass itself could be a, a, an ingredient, but we also uh, obtain colors, different colors, and we aim to obtain also uh, flavors and fragrances out of filamentous fungi and fermentation. Great. Excellent. So talking about the markets, talking about uh, the use of uh, flavors and colors in the industry, Anil, you know, you've done a lot of work in terms of studying how the market is developing. Can you comment a little bit on the rising popularity of alternate protein in meat-free foods? Is consumer acceptance still an issue or are you seeing trends that support the adoption of these meat analogs in a wider manner. Yeah, thank you, Sid. Uh, so you rightly pointed out that the rising popularity for the plant is food is very evident. 
uh, as per our analysis, the household or the retail penetration range for the plant-based meat is around 10% in the US uh, and more than 12% in the Europe regions, which have which has been growing significantly over the last few years. Although in other regions such as the uh, Asian Pacific and Latin America, where the penetration is in the nascent stage stages, one percent. Uh, there has been a significant and a rapid growth over the last few years in these regions. So, consumer acceptance uh, of the plant-based meat depends on multiple factors. So, you can uh, see that, but the major ones include the taste, the texture, and the appearance of the product. So, the as uh, Naji was earlier mentioning in his presentation, the beanie or the earthy flavor of notes uh, generally associated with the plant proteins uh, are one of the major concerns of the inhibitors for the widespread acceptance. Over the past few years, however, plant-based meat, plant-based meat companies are actively working uh, on in this uh, to better than neutralize to better neutralize the inherent flavors of the plant proteins, uh, which is helping the market for the meat alternatives progress and grow. Uh, in my view, uh, an inclusive and multi-channel approach may be required uh, to convince the customers to try these plant-based meats. Uh, the ingredient companies uh, as well as the formulators of these plant-based meat and raw products uh, may closely work with the hotel chains, uh, the food chains, uh, quick service restaurant companies uh, who have, a, have more experience with the taste profile of the end consumers. Uh, so synergies and collaborations uh, bringing together the specialists in each across the value chain uh, can uh, help attain a widespread uh, acceptance um, among the customers or the consumers of these plant-based data and no Excellent, Daniel. Thank you. I would like, I think, uh, Dr. Nachi, I hope you can hear us. I hear you good now. I changed the place. <laughs> okay, excellent. So, you know, I, we were talking about consumer acceptance in this space and I'll be interested in your view from a Nestle, from your own experience point of view. What are you seeing as a B2C kind of a company, as a brand owner? What are you seeing from a consumer acceptability point of view for meat analogs? What I really think, and this is also uh, expressed uh, through all the consumer research that they have seen and I can tell you over the last year, I have been really diving into what is going on from not only from Nestle perspective, but also what are the other consumer research which are public. And uh, we see, as, as I said it already in the presentation, that the acceptability has moved the first mile, which means if you compare today the modern meat analog versus the traditional ones, which were used mostly textured protein versus now high, uh, high moisture, uh, uh, textured protein, the, the difference is phenomenal in terms of taste, in terms of look, in terms of appearance, in terms of colors, even the technologies which are being applied today in terms of colors, uh, as uh, Anil, was, Anil was really uh, uh, showing, are really, really, uh, they have made the difference. What is needed now is how can we get close uh, as much as possible to the meat? Now, how yeah. can we get close to it? It's not only from sensorial. Sensorial, as I said, it's very, very important. It's the biggest, uh, because plant protein from consumer perspective is 
the, when we talk about the the health, when we talk about the 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 animal welfare, when we talk about the the planet, these are given because the consumer are telling us we are moving from animal based to to plant protein for those. So those are already given. We're not talking about it. What we want to make sure is we want to have the best taste and most importantly the cost. Because today, if you look at the, at the, the purchase funnel, most of the consumers who are buying those products are really highly high income uh, consumers. Here in the US, there was a, there was a study which was done where it showed that the, the income between thirty and forty five thousand dollars, the penetration of of methanol is very very low, whereas in the medium high income hundred thousand and 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 above is really a good uh, penetration. So the cost and the taste and the texture are still the most important. So if we want to accelerate the penetration and the acceptability is in these two things. The third one, which is also coming is, is the nutritional part. You know, there are many uh, papers which are coming these days using metabolomics, using sensomics, showing the differences between plant protein and animal-based uh, meat products. And uh, each one has its strength, like the, the proteins, they have all the fibers that the real meat does not. Uh, the, the, the plant protein product, they don't have the high cholesterol, they don't have the TFA, the other ones have. But there are some amino acids, essential amino acids, which are in the meat, which are not there, and vice versa. So how, we, how can we really bridge the gap in terms of minerals and also vitamins in there? So this is another another. Uh, Case, which is really nutritional, but the most important ones are taste and cost. Taste, I mean, taste is taste is king, and cost is very important. As yes, because well. uh, if you look into it, at least here in the US, when you go to the to the to the store, you see a pound of uh, meat for uh, I'm just giving an example three dollars, and uh, a pound of meat meat analog is still at six or seven dollars, which is double. So the cost is phenomenal in that sense. Yeah, good point. So we'll come back to the cost uh, and the dish point, but let me go to Mariano. Mariano, coming at it from a fermentation, precision fermentation point of view, can you comment on sustainability, performance, convenience of fermentation-based product? I think it's related to the cost point. How do you see filamentous fungi as a host? How do you see them as competitive? to what the industry needs when you compare where meat analogs are today. Sure. Uh, yeah, everything that Nachi and Anil mentioned, um, every aspect of the meat analogs that need to be solved, filamentous uh, fungi could help in many of them because, uh, for example, uh, the, the um, appreciation that the consumer has that the meat analogs are too processed, the idea would be to to help to shorten the list of uh, ingredients in the, the formulations. There are formulations that have a lot of ingredients and the, to have a multifunctional ingredient would help a lot with that. And, and filamentous fungi biomass itself has a high nutritional value that is not so much uh, investigated like, like plant-based proteins. It uh, has a natural umami taste, uh, has the, the texture filamentous, the name size uh, is already filamentous. So, it would help as a multifunctional um, product for many plant-based formulations, and there's a lot to discover it, that uh, there yet. And just mentioning the biomass, because what we do at Microma is 
using the element of fungal biomass that we grow at the bioreactor to grow, produce, and secrete different uh, functional ingredients to the media. Uh, that uh, ability that filamentos fungi have uh, allow us, for example, uh, to make uh, the downstream processing easier. You just need to recover the products from the from the supernatant. And also, in terms of codes, um, the high yield of that uh, secretion is important, but also the enzymatic uh, activity that filamentos fungi have that has been historically used uh, allows us to use as a substrate, for example, uh, agriculture residues that uh, is interesting to elevate the, the nutritional nutritional characteristics of something that will be thrown away uh, and obtain high value, high nutritional value biomass that at the same time, uh, for example, uh, helps us to obtain this, this color that we are separating and using right now, for example, in meat analogs. So it's a uh, we are retaining two products at, at once, and it's interesting to. At this point, it's a byproduct the biomass for us. Our main product is the colors, but it's interesting to take a look also on that uh, because it has many many advantages. Perfect. So, if uh, I look at uh, you know the industry, and I think I'll open it for everybody, but maybe. Dr. Raji, if I can come to you first, this is around regulations. What are you seeing in terms of the regulatory framework? You can talk about Europe, you can talk about North America. Is the framework helping or challenging the development and the success of colors and flavors, natural colors and flavors in analogs? Where is the industry? What needs to be changed in your view? First, I would say that uh, the regulatory should not really be should not be looked at as an obstacle. It is very very important because it ensures uh, the public health. It uh, it really puts the consumer uh, before anything else, before the dollar and before and before the profits. And so that's why regulatory is very important. Now, second point is just to 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 make sure I'm not a regulatory person. I I work in a company where we also work with the regulatory, so the only uh, uh, regulatory I, I know a little bit of it is still in the flavor, in the flavor world. And uh, and there is, we know in the flavor industry, when it comes to uh, to regulatory, as of today, if we look in, in that sense, in terms of flavors, we don't really see, because we don't see a big problem because most of the flavors that we have today are either... Uh, natural or non-natural here in the US or just natural in Europe and uh, if not used natural then it will be just a flavoring. Now the problem is it's it's really the, the usage of these flavors because I cannot use the same flavor which is produced in Europe as the one which is produced in the US. So this really uh -huh. you know augment the usage of, uh, of ingredients uh, within within the same the same category. Now, if there is any new science and technology breakthrough which happens, there are new regulatory in there. For example, uh, any new flavors or any new ingredients which will impart a taste, it has to go through the grass, you know, generally recognized as a safe regulatory part, which is again safety. And this takes one to two years. It has been all the time taking that, that amount of, of time. So the 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 the, the, the the food industry and the flavor industry and the 
the suppliers they know how much time does it take and it's not no different for uh, for metanox uh, if there is and if you go to uh, to europe it's again if it is a flavor it goes into the fac and if it is a new ingredient then it has to go through the novel ingredients which also takes two to three years if not more and you have to show all the safety and all the toxicology studies and so on so forth so i think from that sense when it comes to flavors and ingredients uh i would say there is no difference from the other uh food uh, categories now if we look at it from uh, another angle which is really the the cultured uh, proteins or you know the other uh, protein alternatives there there is really a lot of work to be done because those are still not mainstream they are still uh, emerging uh, technologies and once they are mature uh, then they have to go through the those those uh, those regulatory requirements but uh, i always say when i'm working with the, our rsa which is the regulatory and scientific affairs this is really for the for the benefit of the consumers before anything else and the compliance with the regulatory which which are part of the the laws of of, of the country yeah no good point i think you're right i think it's a it's a consumer of safety it's a product safety it's a food safety thing so totally get your point riano from a new technology precision fermentation point of view what do you think of the regulatory framework do you have to go through a different framework to register a natural flavor or a natural color coming from precision fermentation or do you follow a similar system and what do you see as some of the challenges in bringing a fermented product to the market yeah uh, when that he says is totally true it normally takes one between one two or three years to incorporate new new species to the regulatory framework or new ingredients uh, it's important to do so it's important also not to be limited uh, for because of regulation because sometimes some innovative companies would say i would prefer to use uh, already known or already registered uh, species because it's easier uh, and it can get difficult for some small companies or startup to incorporate new new ingredients or new species to the to the framework but it's important to we we still know less than 10% of the known uh, fine jay species in the world it's important not to be limited because of regulation but to uh, go with it uh, assure the the safety for consumers but also innovate because we don't know the next uh, where is the next uh, breakthrough technology uh, and, lim- and regulation cannot be a, a limitation yeah good point yeah anil i think in the presentation of a while earlier you spoke about the new product launches you spoke about kagel growth for the, the category just a little bit of uh, insight from you in terms of how have you seen in, in your studies uh the growth or where is the market sitting with uh, new product launches uh based on your study yeah so uh, as i have uh, mentioned in my uh earlier presentation so the product launches uh is something that uh, that uh, that is going to shoot up uh from now where uh, the demand is growing and more and more new startups are getting into this space and more new brands have, have been reformulating 
uh, their products uh, reformulating basically to address the demands from the consumers, mostly uh, who are who, who, who demand who demand clean label ingredients, natural ingredients, as well as as recognizable ingredients. So uh, the brands have been re- reformulating, and the number of product launches are going to increase in the times to come. Uh, in all the regions, most uh, uh, be it uh, Europe, uh, be it uh, North America and Asia Pacific, Asia Pacific particularly, where uh, the where the consumers may might be uh, interested to try these new products. Uh, Asia uh, Asia Pacific and Latin PC. Uh, uh, the number of new product launches to be on a higher side as compared to Europe and North America, which are uh, which which also witnessed uh, the new products uh, over the years, and uh, the 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 number the number is going to shoot up in the times to come with the demand for it. Excellent. No, I think these are good drivers for the industry. Again, coming back to the points raised, taste is important. Cost, nutritional value and texture. So coming back to you, Dr. Naji, with a company like Nestle, a lot of focus around innovation, a lot of focus around customers, you must be keeping a close eye on developments in the sector. Is there anything that has particularly impressed you recently of the happenings in the flavor industry or in this category of meat analogs? Can you share something with us? Uh, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, I have to, to, to say what what really impressed me was uh, what happened in Singapore, in uh, where where you are really sitting right now, is when the the Singapore Food Agency approval for it just said cultured chicken. Uh, that was a breakthrough in terms of regulatory uh, and uh, opening the door, at least for the cultured meat analogs, because uh, in Europe and in the US. There is still a lot of work which is which is really happening in terms of policy making and uh, regulatory definition, but what happened in Singapore is really you know the first key turn key to to this uh, category. Just to uh, add what uh, Anil was saying, I call it really the virtuous circle. You know, the more the products are good, because maybe now we are talking about the number of product launches. Afterwards, we start talking about the penetration key products like the burgers like the chicken nuggets like uh, the chicken strips or uh, uh, the sausages is really beside the horizontal growth is the is the vertical growth of each of each uh, product type and this comes really with the what we're saying is the improvement of the taste the improvement of the cost a higher penetration uh, the scalability goes higher the cost goes down new innovation comes into it, and then it's really a virtuous circle which can help, you know, to reduce the cost, improve the taste, get more penetration, more penetration, more scalability, and so on and so forth. So this can really, this is the way uh, it is going to happen anyway. So I think the plant base is here to stay. And uh, the numbers that uh, I showed in previous presentation by 2025, how the meat will be at around 7 trillion, and the meat analog at uh, 21 billion, it is a huge uh, business growth and profits which are really coming in there. And this will be uh, made really through this virtuous uh, circle, which is improving the taste, reducing the cost, 
and and move and move forward on that on that sense. But what has impressed me to just to repeat myself was the Singapore for the agency uh, approval, which was you know highly regarded by all the the science and technology world from that. Thank you. Yeah, look, uh, sitting here in Singapore, I think it's great to see that the world has noticed that innovation in this space is important and it's important to win the support of the regulatory authorities to bring such innovation in a safe way to the market. Mariano, in terms of, uh, again, precision fermentation uh, and the industry, where do you think you are heading with your technology? We've had some discussion around cost parity. I know with precision fermentation, scale-up is important. So why don't you tell us a little bit on where you are in terms of that scale-up? How many years do you think it's going to take for precision fermentation to kind of be successful in a competitive kind of the way with uh, how you are working with fungi? Sure. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised, in fact, about uh, how the advanced the precision fermentation field is. Uh, there are these people doing specific proteins that mimics uh, egg proteins or or milk proteins in doing precision precision fermentation in even in uh, in high scale scales. Now it's important to have the access to the to large equipment because, as Nachi says, the price goes down once you scale up. Uh, but there are these people even doing a specific mo fragrance molecules that otherwise would be obtained in a super unsustainable way, like I know Avergood, Esqualine, uh, and all this uh, thanks to precision fermentation. Uh, the scale-up is important, but the possibilities to, ob to obtain a specific molecules that are so important for the food, in food industry uh, it is also to consider right now we are uh, obtaining different colors for different applications out of the same fungi uh, and that's all because that's just changing slight conditions in the fermentation process uh, that you can obtain these three molecules we are mainly uh, focusing the red one right now that is that performs better than other natural options available it's vegan not uh, for example, the carmine is not a vegan option that has been used a lot in the in the food industry, and all this is powdered because uh, powdered by the precision fermentation technology that is scaling up in a in a way that actually surprises me. Uh, and, I, and I don't see many. The main um, difficulty I see probably is to have the access to the equipments to the large scale fermenters, but the technology is going up super fast. Yeah, so it is the capex to scale up to the to the millions of liters, I guess. It's where where the bottleneck is. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, I think Anil, a question to you. I know you've done a lot of work uh, in terms of looking at the demand forecast on the regulatory side, also on the new product uh, launches side. Do you see any differences in the different regions, or or are you seeing a similar trend? across Europe filtering through the other regions. Are there any shades of different colors in the market? Yeah, definitely uh, there are different shades in that different shades in the market. Uh, so that is one of the challenges for the food companies actually. So there is very little harmonization uh, in terms of the regulations. 
for the natural colors and flavors across different countries, uh, which is one of the major concerns for these food and nutrition companies. Uh, see, for example, the definitions or the methodologies are to define natural colors in EU or UK are different how it is defined in the North America or the US uh, particularly. Uh, for example, beetroot color uh, added to an ice cream may not be classified as a natural colorant in the US uh, because ice cream would not have actually contained beetroot juice. However, it uh, is classified as a natural color in the EU region. Uh, also in the US, as Naji was uh, uh, Dr. Naji was earlier mentioning, uh, uh, and in many other countries as well, getting colors new new colors added to the list is is something very challenging. Uh, unlike other ingredients, uh, there is not a generally recognized as safe grass uh, uh, exemption uh, to uh, color additives. Uh, adding new colors requires a petition uh, starting from the stock scratch uh, to the regulating, uh, regulatory authority for approval with evidence of its safety. Uh, these kinds of studies can take at least two to three years. Uh, so the varied approach uh, to the labeling of the natural uh, food colorants uh, is one one such example of many complexities uh, in the food uh, in the food regulation compliance uh, with the with the food industry needs to comply. Yeah, it's a good point. So I think uh, you know it's always challenging, and I think. Uh, a company like Nestle probably is most uh, closest to the challenge of how do you manage this complexity of different regulatory frameworks in different markets uh, and have the right portfolio to meet the consumer acceptance. Dr. Naji, firstly, a question to you. What is the $1,100 million innovation breakthrough or a customer you need you want to see in this category so let me put you in the spot what's the what's that real one thing as a breakthrough or customer need you think you'd like to see uh, from taste perspective i can just answer it from taste perspective not really from uh, for other i i did it to uh, to mariano and to anil to talk about the commerce and the precision fermentation ingredients part but uh, from flavor perspective everybody today knows that the biggest challenge to close the gap uh, versus uh, oh. versus doing uh, animal-based meat is the off-nodes that we have in our uh, plant proteins. And I'm talking plant proteins. I'm not talking about cultured meat or I'm talking really. Uh, so if there is a versatile uh, masking solution that can be used in the meat analog, and which can mask uh, effectively uh, those off nodes. This is a hundred million dollars uh, breakthrough, to be honest. And it is really a step change. Uh, the second one could be also if we have, we are trying to understand uh, lately for the last two, three years, I've seen three or four uh, papers talking about reverse engineering, understanding how. In the meat, we are the, the the aroma are being produced, and they are trying and they are trying to show how they can reverse engineer or deconstruct and construct after the flavors. If we come up with the flavor which is close to as close as possible to the meal state, for example, to the burger, this is the not the next 
step change as well. So these are the two which are hurdle and when known in the literature, when known by the product developer, when known by the the, the flavor industry, uh, that anyone who can make a breakthrough there will have the big pack out of it. And it will help to uh, accelerate the, the penetration of the metamalog uh, further. All right. So, Mariano, are you ready to offer a fermented food masker or offload masking solution to Dr. Naji? Yeah, why not? Everything is, is workable. But in my opinion, um, uh, the, the next technology the next technologies will come, the ones the probably the society is ready to talk about some deepest uh, technologies uh, that, that are available right now, but we need to discuss about uh, about them. Uh, for sure, in Europe, the GMOs uh, are uh, an issue. Uh, but there are some new technologies like CRISPR, for example, or, or precision fermentation that can lead to these solutions that are so difficult to obtain. Uh, I'm not an expert uh, again, but uh, in, in CRISPR technology, you can turn on and turn off certain pathways in the production of some hosts or microorganisms. And that way you can, you can go directly to the target uh, to produce a specific uh, product substances without all the other uh, byproducts that could be, uh, for example, those unpleasant uh, flavors, unpleasant taste. Uh, but the society still need to think uh, about why they are not accepting it, what are the limitations, what needs to be done to, to change the perception of the consumer. Uh, I think there is a lot to work, but the technology is there available. Uh, we just need to have that that serious conversation and and learn more and and spread more um, the information that we have. Uh, information I think is the key for consumer, for uh, technologists, for the companies. And yeah, that technology could be uh, an important progress in that. But uh, well, also powered by uh, precision fermentation, I think they said uh, the, the combo that could could bring those solutions to the market. Yeah, and uh, Mariano, from your viewpoint, microchroma, you know, what do you think uh, from a funding point of view, what is your experience? What are you seeing? What's the level of uh, interest from investors? I think we've spoken about customers, we've spoken about regulators. A view from you, what are, what are the views from the investors uh, on the industry, on the analog side? How are you seeing the reception from the investment communities? Yeah, apart from from plant-based uh, technologies that are that catch the attention of many investors, precision fermentation is is making a huge uh, breaking in the in the area. I don't know. We, we have been working with companies that produce uh, the precise milk proteins, the precise uh, egg proteins, and uh, yeah, the important thing that I think that investors take in mind with that. Is the um, the sustainability and the, the less intense use of res resource? That's uh, why I think that the precision fermentation will uh, take a lead soon, and probably in combination with the plant-based proteins uh, that are emerging. There are many companies that combine 
precision fermentation with with plant-based uh, proteins. Probably they don't have the the exact characteristics that you need, but if you if the, those proteins go through a process of fermentation, uh, you can have a a better quality of protein. Uh, I don't know if Nazi probably knows about them. There are many of them that have raised a lot, a whole lot of money. As and as I'm telling you, many of them are even in large scale that are so complicated to 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 reach and they are showing us that it's possible and there couldn't be a, a combination of of both technologies. Yeah, great. So I think we are uh, just running on time. So I would like to summarize. Uh, firstly, thank you to everybody for a great insight-driven session. I think, uh, Dr. Narji, you summed it up pretty well. It's about taste, but it's not taste alone. It's also cost, cost parity. It's about texture and it's about nutritional value. And that regulatory is for consumer protection, regulatories for product and consumer safety. So I think it's a very exciting industry. We've seen a lot of growth in meat analogs. Uh, I really would like to thank you for your time. I'd like to encourage the folks on this webinar to connect uh, with each of you through the platform if they have any questions ready networking that they want to do. But it's been a real pleasure to have you and thank you for joining. Thank you for listening to the Future of Protein Production Podcast. We hope you gained valuable insights and knowledge about the innovative technologies and practices that are transforming the way we produce protein. Don't forget to subscribe to Protein Production Technology International, our multimedia magazine, and follow us on social media to stay up to date with the latest news and updates. Stay tuned for more exciting episodes.